Well, this morning as we gather around God's word, I want to talk to you about unshakable contentment. Contentment, I think it's something we all want, right? But, w- but what is it? I mean, how, how do we put contentment into words? Well, if you go to Google and you type in the word contentment, uh, the first thing that's going to come up is a definition. A definition that says a state of happiness and satisfaction. And then if you continue to scroll down the website, you're going to find, you know, some self-help guidelines, some Zen tips for contentment. And even on the first page of Google search results, you'll find a list of Bible verses that has to do with contentment. But what I found even more interesting was when I went back up to the top of the page uh, where I had searched contentment and I clicked on images. I said, well, what are the images that are going to come up when I search contentment. Well, let me tell you, it's a whole lot of people sitting at the end of a dock over a very glassy lake, probably with a mountain or something in the background. That's what contentment is, according to Google Images. You'll also find you know, somebody relaxing in a hammock, lots of nature, and lots and lots of trees. Sometimes trees in the middle of a lake, right? These are the images that come up when you search for contentment. And as I was looking at all those images, I couldn't help but think, is that really what contentment is all about? When I'm looking for images of contentment, how come I'm not seeing any images of a thunderstorm or images of uh, a desert or, you know, a picture of an empty pantry or, you know, picture of a pink slip that says you're fired. Why did none of those images come up with contentment? And I was concerned that I think that's how the world understands contentment. That They tie contentment to circumstances. Contentment is you sitting at the end of the dock over the glassy lake with the mountain in the background, right? That is contentment. And really what I want to know is not so much what is contentment or what does it look like, But how do I get it? How do I get that state of happiness and satisfaction? And not just how do I get it, how do I keep it? So that when the storm comes, right? Well, I mean, what happens when the storm comes and I'm sitting at the end of the dock over the lake that's not so glassy anymore? Can there still be a picture of contentment there? And to find those answers, we can't go to Google We can't go to self-help books. We're not going to learn it from Zen habits. We're going to learn it from God's Word. And even more than that, we're going to learn it, especially how today is connected to that. How how the path to true and lasting, unshakable contentment is going to go right past the empty tomb that we are celebrating today. And to show this to you, I want us to look today at Psalm 16. Psalm 16. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. And if you're you're a part of our church and you've been with us all week, every single day, we've been looking at a different psalm. And some of them have just been encouraging to us. But what we have seen is there are some psalms that actually are pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. And I want us to see that in Psalm 16 today. It says it is a miktam of David. 
We don't really know what a miktam is. It's probably, I mean, these are ancient songs that were written. So maybe it has something to do with the tune or how it's supposed to be played or a certain kind of uh, poem that it was in ancient times, but it was of David. So King David, the David who slew Goliath, the David who was the king of Israel after God's own heart, he wrote this psalm. And let me read it for us and we will talk about it then together. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, why did I pick this psalm for Easter Sunday? Maybe that strikes you as a little bit odd. You know, we're looking at some song in the Old Testament talking about contentment on Easter Sunday. Well, the reason for that comes from verse 10. Look at verse 10, especially. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Who is David talking about in that verse? So King David, he reigned, and this song was written somewhere in the range of about 1,000 B.C., so 1,000 years before Christ. But to answer that question, verse 10, he is not really talking about himself. He is not the Holy One who will not see corruption. David is talking about the Messiah, right? This anointed one that, that the people of Israel were expecting and looking forward to the prophet, priest, and king who would ultimately be their deliverer and their savior and their leader. He is, talk, he is looking forward to that figure. He doesn't know that his name would be Jesus, and he doesn't know all the details of it. He doesn't know when he's going to come, but he knows in the future, hey, this holy one, God is not going to allow them to see corruption. And I want to make this clear. This isn't some idea that I, you know, pulled out of some book I read or that I came up with. This isn't some idea that I learned in seminary. The Bible tells us that David was talking about Jesus Christ. And it tells us that among other places in Acts chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And what's going on in Acts chapter 2 is a sermon is being preached 
on a very unique occasion. You see, it was another Jewish holiday, Pentecost, and this would have been several weeks now after Passover, after Jesus has died and risen again, and now Jesus has ascended back into heaven, and his disciples are are waiting around, and on this day, as they are gathered together and praying, the Holy Spirit comes. The promise of a helper that Jesus gave to them is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit comes, and there's flames of, you know, tongues of fire on their head, and they're speaking in other languages, and it turns into a sermon that Peter is preaching to this crowd of people in Jerusalem. And I want you to look at a part of that sermon. Pick it up in verse 22, Acts 2, 22. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here we see he's talking about the resurrection. He's also, you know, throwing out a little conviction saying, hey, this Jesus whom you crucified and killed. But then, hey, God has raised him up. And then look at what he does in verse 25. He quotes Psalm 16. It says, for David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He starts quoting and it gets to the end and says, you know, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Direct quotes from Psalm 16. Now pick it up at verse 29. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He says, guys, Psalm 16 isn't talking about David. Why? Because look, his tomb is right over there. He's been corrupting for a thousand years now. That's not who this Psalm is talking about. Look at verse 30. He says, being therefore a prophet, David was a a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he, he would set one of his descendants on him throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ or the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. He's saying, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, and that's exactly what David was talking about a thousand years ago, that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. And this isn't the only place we see this. Eleven chapters later, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. He refers to the same verse from Psalm 16. So here we see 1,000 years before Jesus died and rose again, David is telling us it's going to happen. He is telling us that the Holy One, this Messiah, he was not going to see corruption. It was referring to Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was predicted long before it happened. And again, this isn't the only evidence. It's also predicted right before it happens. Jesus himself, throughout his ministry, makes it clear that he is going to rise again right? Even if you're reading through the Bible with us as a church, yesterday we just read the passage where after Jesus has died, the Pharisees go to back to Pilate 
and they say, hey, you better guard that tomb because this guy said that after three days, he would rise again, right? They were concerned and they knew, even the enemies of Jesus knew that he had claimed that he was going to rise again. So we see David calling, calling it a thousand years before. We see Jesus calling it and then it happened just as it would, was predicted Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. This is really one of the most certain facts we can know in history, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. And if you think, man, that sounds like a fairy tale, that sounds hocus pocus, I I don't know how intelligent, scientific, modern people can believe that. I get where you're coming from. And I would encourage you, start doing some research. Don't just dismiss it. Start digging into the ideas. Okay, people have been saying Jesus rose from the dead for 2,000 years now. If it didn't happen, then what did happen? And even there's some resources on the back of, there's a note sheet on our website that you can print up. There's some resources on there. One that I would encourage you to go through if you have these questions is more than a carpenter. And start, start asking, well, what really did happen? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he didn't, what really happened? But even just think about Peter, who we see here in Acts chapter 2. What else is Peter known for? Oh yeah, that's right. The night before Jesus was crucified, what did Peter do? He denied Christ. He denied him three times. He was so scared, so concerned for his own life that he denied that he even knew Jesus. And now here he is standing up in front of thousands of people saying, Hey, you killed Jesus. How does he undergo that transformation? The only logical explanation is he met a risen Jesus Christ. You see, Peter and all of the other disciples, except for one, the Apostle John, history tells us they were all killed for their faith. And if this was really some kind of scam, right? Some kind of idea that they came up with, hey, let's steal the body. Let's tell people he rose again. Who's going to die for a lie? And this lie, if that's what it was, that they came up with, led them to poverty, suffering, and death. I don't know about you, but when I see people come up with scams, usually it involves them getting rich. That's not what happened here. These people gave their lives for the fact that Jesus rose again. What would give you know, these chickens who all abandoned Christ the night before he was crucified What would give them that kind of courage other than an interaction with a truly resurrected Jesus Christ? It really happened. It was predicted and it happened just like it was predicted. And this isn't information that Jesus rose again. This isn't just, oh, you know, interesting, you should know this. There's a response that needs to happen. And let's just even talk about that. And if you're taking notes and you can print up that note sheet on our website, but point number one, this Easter Sunday is respond to the predicted Messiah. Respond to the predicted Messiah. The fact that Jesus rose again demands a response, right? There are facts out there, you know, like George Washington is the first president of the United States. That's, that's a fact. And, and, but it's kind of one of those that you say, well, so what? So what there, that, that he was the first president? Is that demanding you to do anything differently today? Well, not so much. Here's another potentially true fact. Let's say this fact is true. 
your house is on fire, okay? Now, that's a fact, but that, that calls for a response, right? You're not just going to sit there and keep doing whatever it was that you were doing. You need to respond to the fact that your house is on fire. So Jesus rose again. That is a fact. What kind of fact is that? You know, just, oh, that's some historical trivia knowledge or no, that is urgent and it demands a response. Well, biblically, it's telling us it demands a response from us. And if you're still in Acts chapter 2, that's what we see right here. We see Peter say, right, eventually, look at verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, right, when they were hearing what he was saying about Jesus, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgive, or be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. When we get to, okay, well, what is the response demanded by the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead? The first word out of Peter's mouth is repent. Repent, which just simply means turn. Literally, they would use it in the armies to, you know, when they needed to say about face, they would say the Greek word repent, that they would turn around and start marching a different direction. And they needed to turn because he says, you know, save yourself from this crooked generation. You guys are going astray. You, you crucified Christ. You need to turn around. You need to change. And here's the deal. Today, okay, well, you might not have been there shouting crucify him, but you today are a part of a crooked and twisted generation. And, and us today, we have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord that he is. And basically, we've said instead of Jesus being in charge, I'd like to be in charge. And we need to turn from that way of thinking. Jesus has risen. He is the Lord. He is the King. And we need to turn from a lifestyle that's showing, I think I am the King. Uh, later, when Paul talks about the same verse from Psalm chapter 16, he, he tells him you need to believe, right? Another word we see all throughout the Bible is that of faith, repentance and faith. Really, it's two sides of the same coin, right? We turn from doing our own thing and living our own way, and we turn to Jesus in faith, saying, Jesus, I've messed up. I'm doing it my own way. I should be doing it your way. Would you forgive me? You're the Savior that I need because you died on the cross for my sins you've paid my debt. And also, you've risen again. You're the one that can give me power to live a different life, to live actually for you, for my creator, for my Lord. That is the response that everyone needs to a risen Savior, to turn from our way and to turn to Him and say, you're the only one that can forgive me. You're the only one that can lead me. You're the only one that can give me power to live a new life. Jesus, I want you. We also see Peter even saying, and, and be baptized, right? That, that's, that's where, you know, we get dunked in the, 
in, in the water. And what it is, it, it's a symbol. Yes, it's an outward symbol of what has happened on the inside of that repentance and faith. But it is an important thing. We need to repent and believe and, and we, are, we, we are saved. And then we give that outward expression of that through baptism. I want to encourage you, Easter should not be some token acknowledgement of some, you know, his, something in history that may or may not have happened. Because if you have not responded, if you have not turned from your sin and put your trust in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then today is meaningless. You have missed the point of what Easter is all about. There is no path at, at that moment for salvation for you and Bringing us back to our topic for this morning, there's no path to contentment. The road to contentment goes right past the empty tomb of Jesus Christ where God is calling us, hey, turn from your way and even your paths to contentment and turn to my way and put your faith in me. That's where the road to contentment begins. And and if you have truly turned from your sin and put your trust in Christ, your heart, your attitude is going to look different. And that's really what we see if you get back to Psalm 16. And now maybe it seemed a little disconnected, like we were just talking just about the resurrection and weren't we supposed to be talking about contentment? Well, now let let me try to bring it back together for us and look at the rest of Psalm 16, right? Because if we really turn from our sin, if we really put our faith in Christ, what does that look like? And that's where we see it's more than just acknowledging facts. It's more than just making Jesus a part of your life. It's really making Jesus all of your life, making Jesus your everything. If you're back in Psalm 16, just for instance, look at some of the language that is used. Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Wow. What an intense statement. He doesn't say, well, Jesus, you know, you're the best thing in my life. Or, you know, most of my good comes from you, God. He is saying, no, I have no good without you. I have no good without the Lord. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's the idea there of an inheritance, right? Of what portion, you know, of my, of my family's wealth am I getting? Or even what part of the land? Or even this idea of the lines being drawn. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were given different portions with, with boundary lines drawn around them. And he's saying, hey, my inheritance, the boundary lines around what I'm giving is great. I am so thrilled. Why? Because my inheritance, you know what it is? It's God. That's what I want. That is what I am looking for. That is what I need. David is saying, hey, the thing that I need the most, the thing that I want the most is God. And that's really then the path towards contentment. And that's what real repentance and faith looks like, where you stop looking for satisfaction and looking for contentment and all these other things and you start looking to God for it. Point number two this morning, put it down this way, place God at the center of your life. 
Place God at the center of your life. And if you do that, it's going to lead to certain actions, but I want to talk a little more about the heart. What is that going to look like on the inside? Because God is your creator. He's your provider. He sent his son into the world to be your savior. And he is meant to be number one in your heart. That's the way that it should be. God should be central in your heart. You see, contentment has to do with your desires. Contentment starts to get back to the question, well, what is it that you really want? Right? If contentment is a state of happiness and satisfaction, what are you looking for that will make you happy, that will satisfy you? Another way to ask the question is, what is the most important thing in your life? And the way it's supposed to be, God is supposed to be the most important thing in your life. And if he is not, the reality is you will never know true contentment. You will never have that unshakable contentment if anything other than God is at the center of your life. If anything other than God is number one in your life heart. We need to boil it down to what is most important in our lives. You know, earlier I talked about the, you know, George Washington is the first president, your house is on fire. Those are two different kinds of information. And Jesus rising again isn't just, you know, hey, historical fact. It's something that demands an urgent response. Speaking of houses being on fire, I read an article recently about somebody whose house burned down a few weeks ago. And this was a wealthy person, I mean, a large house, 12,000 square feet, but it was made of pine wood. And, you know, from the time they noticed the fire just in the garage of the house, I mean, within five to 10 minutes, the whole house was up in flames. And within a half an hour, the whole thing was destroyed, right? Their whole, the house that they've lived in for a long time, poof, it is gone in a moment. Now, this man, he, he claims to be a, a believer, and even in, in the interviews afterwards, he was talking about, you know, despite all that happened, he couldn't stop thinking about how lucky they were. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if my first reaction, when, if I know that my house had burned to the ground, would be, oh man, I'm so lucky. Why did he say that? Well, there were a few reasons. For one, well, one of his kids had been over for dinner that night with their family, and one of his granddaughters had been begging grandma and grandpa, can I spend the night here at your house with you guys? And they had said, not tonight, maybe we'll do that this weekend. And he was thinking, wow, I'm so glad that we made that decision without knowing what had happened. Or he talked about calling one of his sons, you know, who had grown now, is out of the house, and calling him, and he said he apologized because, you know, there had been special memories, special, you know, things from that son's childhood that were in the house, and now they're gone, and there's no way to get those things back. And so the dad was saying, Matt, son, I'm sorry about these things that were destroyed. And the son said this, Dad, I don't care about anything that was in the house. All I needed to come out of that house okay was you and mom, and you both did, right? In that moment, when everything seemed lost, that's when they found out what was most important to them. 
that sure, was there stuff that they would miss? That there was some, definitely a level of sadness that over things that had been lost? Absolutely. But the most important things were still intact. They still had each other. And really, that's true in a spiritual sense as well. The trials, the hard things that happen in life, that the, the, the spiritual fires that come and consume things that we love in our life, that's what's going to reveal what is most important to you. When your life goes through a fire and you lose a job or you lose a relationship or you lose you know, comfort or you, you lose something that you, that you loved or, or even sometimes someone that you love. Is there a contentment that you have because, hey, even though I lost something that was special or important to me, I still have God. I still have the most important thing. My faith came out of that fire. Okay. Is that what's most important to you? I mean, what would you rather have happen to you? Would you rather lose your job or your faith? Would you rather have all this worldly success and fame and accolades, or would you rather be walking closely to God? Which is really more precious to you? Not that, you know, your faith and your job are mutually exclusive, but which one's more important? And sometimes what exposes what is more important is when you lose something. When you lose something in life is your response, hey, I'm okay because the most important thing I needed to come out of that fire was my relationship with God. And because that is, then, then you know what? I am okay. Only one thing can be the ultimate in your life. Even we talk today about priorities. I mean, that, that's not the way, the, the word priority, you trace it back to its root. It's talking about the one thing that is most important. And that can only be one thing in your life. Only one thing can be God to you. And look at verse 4. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That the people that put something else in their life ahead of God, they're going to they're gonna have a rough time. Why? Is this like some statement of judgment that God's going to zap them because of that? No. What it's saying is it's inevitable because if you put something else in the place of God, it is going to let you down. Period. End of story. Guaranteed. That is what is going to happen. If you put money first, it's not going to satisfy. It's going to run away from you at some point in your life. If you put pleasure first, or just all the hedonistic desires of, of the world first, that's not going to fill you up. Those are going to fail at some point. Even good things. I mean, desiring success is not bad in and of itself, but that's not meant to be God. Or even think, even in that story of the house burning down, what was most important, I mean, in an earthly sense, family. And that's where even biblically, when we just look at it from a human level, that should be, you know, the most important, those should be the most important people on earth to us. But there is still a higher priority even than that. Family is certainly meant to be a good thing, but it's not meant to be God. It's not meant to be the most important thing. Even maybe biblically, it's number two on the list. It's behind God. But we've all experienced trouble in our families. And if that is your God, then your sorrows are going to multiply. But when God is God, 
When God is number one in your heart, you're going to have a different perspective. Because other things will let you down. Other things will change. But God never does. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Do you see how that leads to contentment? When you're saying, hey, the thing I want most in life is God. I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to follow him. If that's what you want most, well, then when the storm comes, when you're walking through the desert, there might be some loss. I mean, it's not like you're like, oh boy, this is so fun. But you're saying, you know what? I'm still content because I still have what matters the most. That's the way that we need to think. And that has to start in our heart. And you need to search your heart. I mean, have you, has God ever been the priority in your life? He should be. But even those of us that can say yes and amen, that is a daily struggle because there are always other things trying to fight for that spot of priority. And sometimes things do become idols in our hearts that we're saying, I need this to be content, right? I need fill in the blank is one of the most dangerous thoughts a Christian can think unless it's, man, I need the steadfast love of the Lord. Because then we're starting to say, man, I need this to be content. And what we really need is God and Him at the center of our lives. And it starts in the heart, but it leads to certain actions. I mean, look at verse 3. As for the saints or the holy ones, or to put it in you know, modern day language, basically as for the Christians, those who are seeking God in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If God is really our ultimate priority, then we will seek fellowship with his people. I want to invest in relationships with people that have that same priority as me. And I know it's Easter, and usually I see a bunch of unfamiliar faces on Easter Sunday at a church, and I can't see your face today, but if you are visiting our church, I guess, today online, I want to invite you to make seeking God's people a priority in your life because seeking God is the number one priority in your life. Please connect with us. We, we want to run the race of the Christian life with you. Or look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Where do you go for wisdom? Where are you running to for that? Do you seek it from the world? Do you seek it from television? Do you seek it from a Google search? Or do you seek it from God's word? That's why we're, this whole idea of setting the Lord before us, that's why we are Compass Bible Church. Because he is the one that's going to guide us and set the direction for our lives. Have you made God your, your everything, your number one priority? Where, hey, he is all that I need. And what I want to do in this life is to be with his people, to seek his wisdom, to live for him and to seek his ways. That is the mindset that we all need. And then it leads to this contentment. I, God is my everything, therefore I'm okay. Whether life is good, whether life is bad, I have what I need because what I need is God. And I can have that right relationship with him because Jesus died for me and he rose again. And now I've turned from my sin and put my faith in him. I've got what's most important and that can't be taken away from me, so I'm good. 
we get to verse 9 of Psalm 16, and it says, therefore. And that's the old, you know, preacher saying, whenever we get to the therefore, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, that's verses 1 through 8. He's basically said, God is everything to me. Therefore, then he describes unshakable contentment. Therefore, my heart is glad. Happiness, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Satisfaction, a state of happiness and satisfaction. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to Sheol and, or let your Holy One see corruption. Right? Because of what Jesus has done, I have unshakable contentment. And then verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's saying, I know who my God is, and I know where the road of my life is taking me. It's taking me with him, and it's all about being with him. That's where the fullness of joy is, in his presence. And that's where I'm going to be forever. So there's going to be joy and pleasure for me forever more. That changes our whole outlook, not just even about the right now, but the future. That because I have prioritized God and because I know I will be with him, then I'm expecting a bright future. Put that down even for point number three. Expect a bright future. Expect a bright future. And that has nothing to do with success or money or earthly peace or comfort. No. But it has everything to do with, I'm expecting a bright future because I will experience the presence of God now and into eternity. And that's all I need, so I'm good. And I am expecting a bright future. Probably the most familiar psalm in all the Bible, and we talked about it at our little nightly devotional that we've been doing early on in the week, is Psalm 23. If you're in Psalm 16, just turn over uh, just one or two pages in your Bible to Psalm 23. Very familiar. It starts, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And then he goes and he talks about, you know, green pastures and still waters. It's the Google image stuff of contentment, right? Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me go sit at the dock over a glassy lake with the mountain in the background. That's what he describes in verses two and three. But look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. So even when the storm comes, he's not going to be afraid. He's still going to experience contentment. Why? Because he's expecting the presence of God. He knows that God will be with him. The heart of unshakable contentment says, hey, my hope for the future is bright and that has nothing to do with my circumstances and everything to do with knowing that God will be with me. That's why my future is bright. And I think sometimes while we struggle with expecting the future is uh, that we don't know what's going to happen. And so we kind of think, well, I don't know. Maybe my future is going to be good. Maybe it's not. I don't know. And I mean, let's get real. This Easter out of all times is easiest to admit, I don't know what's going to happen 
in the future. But you know what? That was just as true last Easter. And it'll be just as true wherever you are next Easter. You don't know what is going to happen. And that's why we should do more of what it says in James 4. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to go and do this or that, we should say, if the Lord wills, I will go and do this or that. But if you are a believer, you can say, hey, I have set the Lord always before me. He is number one. I am seeking him. He is at my right hand. He is with me. Therefore, I will not be shaken. And you can say what it says in the last verse of Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can say that. I know where I'm going and I know God will be with me and his goodness and his mercy are going to be chasing after me. Like if the Lord is the shepherd, his goodness and mercy are the sheepdogs that are running circles around me, keeping me close to him. The heart of unshakable contentment doesn't say I know what's going to happen, but it says I know who I'm going to be with for the rest of my life and for eternity. And that's why I'm expecting a bright future. I'm not expecting wealth or, or even health or these other things. I don't know what's going to happen there, but I know whatever happens, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God's with me. And therefore, I can have security, I can have happiness and satisfaction no matter where I am. The church I worked at before here, I I had the privilege there of doing a lot of weddings. Got to a point where I was probably doing more weddings than any of the other pastors on on staff. And those were always joyful occasions. Sure, yes, I've seen some, you know, wedding day nerves uh, from some people. But even then, the day was never characterized by sorrow. It was always joyful. And on that wedding day, they're always expecting a bright future. And I want you to think about that, maybe back to your own wedding day. I mean, a lot of these people, they're young, they, they, don't, they don't have wealth, they, they don't, they're still trying to figure out life, they don't know what's going to happen, but their expectation on that wedding day for that bright future, it doesn't have anything to do with their expectations of their circumstances. It has everything to do with who they're going to be with. And, and even they admit they don't know their circumstances. They, they talk about things like sickness and health, richer or poorer, better or worse, right? It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It's all about who I'm going to be with. And that's why, you know, the the image search on Google has it wrong. And then I'll give them this. It is hard to put contentment in a picture because what they try to do is show the what of contentment. But contentment isn't about the what. It's about the who. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing Jesus Christ and living for him. And that's how you can have contentment in the desert or in the storm. Because I knew, I know who I'm going to be with as a believer. And I know that he will be with me in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, in better and worse. And even what's that line that, that they end those vows with at a wedding? Till death do us part. And that part doesn't even apply to what God is promising 
to us. Because death cannot part us. It cannot separate us from the love of God. Why? Because Jesus rose again. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has removed the sting of death so much so that death will not be the moment when we are parted from Jesus, but death will be the moment we are united with him forevermore because Jesus is alive. And so contentment isn't about an image. It's not about a what. It's about a who. And that who ultimately is going to bring us back to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we could have eternal life. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A life that is full, a life that is meaningful when we make him our everything. Have you done that? Let's, tr- let's turn our eyes to Jesus this Easter, our risen King, Savior, and Lord. Let's pray together. God, we praise you that Jesus rose from the dead, that it was predicted and then it happened just like he said it would and that he is alive forevermore. God, we praise you that death will not be the end for those who have put their trust in Christ, but only the beginning of an eternity in your presence. God, and I don't know what people are going through as they're watching this Easter sermon. God, I know we're in the middle of this weird worldwide pandemic that is disrupting all of our lives to some extent, God. But I don't know who here, Lord, still even now feels like they're walking by the green pastures and the still waters. I don't know who here, God, feels like they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But whatever the what in our lives may be, I pray that we would get the who right that we'd be walking with you, that you would be the priority of our lives. I pray for those that are watching God, that they've been living for something else, that they would turn from that and find salvation in Jesus. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would um, always keep you in that number one position, God, that we wouldn't get distracted or focused on other things that will ultimately disappoint, but that we would set you always before us. God, thank you that Jesus is alive. We worship you this Easter Sunday in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, my name is John Holmes. My name is Rob, and this is my wife, Melanie. My name is Holden. My name is Amir Bodeshaw. Hi, my name is Amanda, and Compass Bible Church is my home. Compass Bible Church is my home. Church has never been about a building. Church has never been about the building. It's about the people. It's about the people, the fellowship, and the teaching of God's Word. If you're looking for a church family, we'd love to invite you to join ours. If you're looking for a church home, I'd love to invite you to join ours. I would love to invite you to join ours. We can't wait to meet you face to face. We can't wait to meet you face to face. And until then, connect with us at compassbible.tv at compassbible.tv